Welcome to Guard's podcast on Watch. I'm Kim Jeffries, and in our fourth episode, I have the opportunity to share my conversation with a man who truly inspires me. He's Bernd Oppeland, Secretary General of the Norwegian Red Cross. Bernd visited Guard on August 19th to talk with us about the work of the Red Cross and Red Crescent during this pandemic. He also shared his thoughts about the recent events in Haiti and Afghanistan. Despite the immense challenges facing the world's most vulnerable, Barrett finds signs for hope in our shared future. Have a listen. So first of all, welcome back to Guard, Barrett. Thank you so much, Kim. It's so good to be back, and thank you for having me. It's our honor and privilege. So Barrett, you started your career as a journalist mm. and then uh, joined the Norwegian Red Cross mm. as a communication officer and served in various positions uh, in the field and at headquarters. Um, and you've also been the executive director of UNICEF. Mm. So you've got a broad and 25-year uh, deep background mm. in humanitarian work. And I think we, we know that the International Red Cross and Red Crescent is the world's largest humanitarian network. Mm. But can you tell us a little bit about um, the mission? Mm. Uh, most certainly. Uh, the core of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent is very <coughs> simple. It's to save and improve lives. Uh, that has been uh, the mission from uh, day one, and it still is the mission. It started on the battlefield in, uh, in northern uh, Italy and uh, uh, was very specifically uh, targeted towards uh, wounded soldiers. But uh, during the more than, now it's almost 160 years since the Red Cross Red Crescent was established, it has, uh, our scope of work has uh, broadened. Uh, we uh, basically work with all kind of aspects of saving and improving lives. And we work in 192 different countries. Uh, so the, when you meet Red Cross and Red Crescent uh, around the world, there will be uh, many differences uh, um, because they adapt to the local needs. It's always the local needs that, that drive us. But the core is always uh, saving and improving lives, which means that health has always been very, very central to what uh, the Red Cross do. And emergencies are uh, also very central to what uh, the Red Cross do. But we do also work uh, more and more with social issues around the world, and especially, I think, in the, the more industrialized parts of the world. And I think it's uh, important to mention, too, about the uh, impartiality and mm. the neutrality, which has been baked into the organization from the beginning. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, that was the start. Uh, the whole, it, it was basically, uh, uh, at, at the time, uh, in the mid-19th uh, century, uh, quite a re uh, revolutionary idea that you should help everybody, uh, regardless of... Uh, uh, what kind of army they belong to or what kind of uh, government they belong to. It's ba purely based on the needs. And uh, to be able to do that, we need to be neutral and we need to be impartial. But it's only a tool because we only want, uh, it's only a way for us to be able to help people uh, in all situations around the world. Before getting started on the pandemic, mm. We'd like to hear your thoughts about um, the recent events in Haiti and mm. also uh, the situation in Afghanistan, and in particular, how the takeover in Afghanistan of the Taliban will affect the Red Cross work there. Mm. 
Uh, to start with Haiti, I think um, Haiti, as you might know, is the poorest country on, in, in the Western Hemisphere. And it's a, uh, it's a country and, uh, in, and the people that have been, uh, have seen uh, mismanagement and corruption for uh, 50, 60 years now. So it's a, it's a country where, we, where the, the situation before this earthquake uh, was already very dire. The, the, I, I think uh, if you fly to Haiti, you, you really see uh, the situation there because it's, it's, uh, the Haiti is one of two countries on an island. One is Haiti, the other one is the D Dominican Republic. And flying over, over that island, you can see where the, where the border is because on the Dominican side, there will be forest. On the Haitian side, there will be nothing because people are so poor that they need to cut down the, the trees to have something to cook their food with. Um, and if you look at the life expectancy, on one side of the border the, the, in Haiti, the life expectancy today is around 63 years. Across the border, it's more than 10 years longer. So it, it, it means that Haiti is a very, very uh, mismanaged country. And that's also why uh, an earthquake which is relatively uh, weak, actually, uh, 7.2, if I remember co correctly, has this dramatic effect. 2,000 people killed, uh, more than 10,000 wounded, and probably uh, up to a million people uh, affected. If this earthquake had happened here uh, in, uh, in Arndal, the consequences uh, would have been far, far less, because the buildings would have been much stronger, uh, so you wouldn't have uh, had the same uh, physical consequences and the response capacity would have been better. So it means that uh, in a situation like that, uh, what the international community needs to do is to bring in very basic services to be able to rescue people from the rubble, to be able to give people uh, life-saving medical assistance and uh, in, a, in a longer term to help uh, people with shelter and, uh, and food and, uh, and uh, water in, uh, in a year or two and then build back uh, to give them an opportunity to have a home again and rebuild their lives. But unfortunately, this is just a disaster that is coming on top of other disasters. You had a political disaster earlier this summer where the, where the president was killed. It's only uh, 10 years since the last big earthquake in, in Haiti. It's, uh, this is a really plagued population, I'm afraid. That's a major challenge indeed. Mm. Let's, um, let's shift to Afghanistan mm. and the specific question about um, how the takeover of the Taliban will affect the work, humanitarian work going forward? Yeah, it's, it's still an open question, I think, because it's, 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 a, it's a very uncertain period. Uh, and there are a lot of questions. There are signals coming from, uh, from Taliban that they will uh, operate differently than they did uh, the last time they were in power. Uh, we will still have to see how this uh, plays out. But from the Red Cross uh, point of view and the Red Crescent point of view, I think um, in many ways, it, ironically, it's going to be easier for us to operate. Uh, first of all, because there will be uh, more peace in the country, the, there will be less uh, risk of suicide attacks, of, of conflicts popping up in, in, in different contexts. Uh, and uh, the whole security environment will probably be more predictable. So. If you're a male and working with the Red Cross, it's probably going to be, in a way, easier uh, because it's going to be more predictable. Um, 
On the other hand, we have also over a long period, both the International Red Cross and the Norwegian Red Cross uh, as well, we have been working with the Taliban uh, because over the last, uh, because we have been in and out of uh, grace, so to speak, with the Taliban over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, but a couple of years back, we received again security guarantees from Taliban. Uh, but that came with a clear uh, wish that we also engaged much more in the Taliban-controlled areas. So, uh, because they <coughs> the Taliban have been looking at the international community and looking how much of the international aid is actually going to, uh, to government-controlled areas and how much is actually going to, to Taliban-controlled areas. And uh, it's been, uh, it has not been a 50-50 split, mm. and they have been very much aware of it. Uh, so th that's why the, the, the Afghan Red Crescent has uh, increased their presence in the Taliban-controlled uh, areas, and the International Red Cross as well. And the Norwegian Red Cross, we opened a health clinic in, in Taliban-controlled areas um, earlier this year uh, to treat both the population in the area, of course, but also to treat uh, wounded Taliban soldiers. And <coughs> based on this cooperation with the Taliban, I think that we are in a good position to be able to operate uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan as a whole in the, in, in the period that comes. And quite frankly, um, uh, the Taliban will be uh, totally dependent on international uh, support if they're going to be able to deliver services to their population. And that's something you most people probably don't reflect over, but a guerrilla movement like Taliban without uh, control over territory and the same movement with control over territory is two different things. Because in the, in, uh, when you, you have control over territory, uh, you're expected to deliver services to the population in that area. And I think the expectation uh, in the Afghan population is much higher today mm. than it was 20 years ago, because they now know uh, what is uh, achievable and what is possible. Mm. So the legitimacy of Taliban uh, depends quite heavily, in my view, on what they are able to deliver to their population. And I think that's part of the reason why you see how they, uh, their rhetoric is now. And I think that is also, if you're a little bit positive and not being naive, also uh, a reason to believe that they will actually have a much more constructive uh, cooperation with the international community now than uh, as opposed to what they had 20 years ago. I think it's, um, it's very reassuring and positive mm. to hear that the groundwork is already there. Mm. Um, but I heard the word male mm. <laughs> in your answer, and this feeds into um, a question from a Guard employee, mm. um, and I'll just read it. Um, how do we support continued educational opportunities for girls in Afghanistan mm. and other countries where girls are not given the same opportunities as boys? Mm. Um, is it possible to make a donation to Red Cross as an individual for this purpose? Hmm. To start with the, with, the, with the last part of the question, uh, the <laughs> short answer is no, and that's the reason for that is because we don't really we don't do education. What the, the Red Cross uh, has as our mission when it comes to education is to secure access. And that's especially in conflict areas, but also in other politi political contexts where we engage with authorities and war warlords to make sure that there is safe access to, to schools for the kids in the area. 
uh, if you want to support uh, concretely uh, education for girls, there are other, other organizations I think that are doing excellent work, for instance UNICEF, but also, also other uh, organizations and also local Afghan uh, organizations. So it's, it's definitely a possibility, but within the Red Cross we focus in Afghanistan much more on, on health and, uh, and on, on food security. Um, I think we will also here in this area need to follow the situation closely. Um, again, the signals from Taliban is that they will, uh, they will allow uh, girls to go to school. Uh, they will allow women to uh, take part in, the, in work life and they, they say they will have uh, female ministers. At the same time, uh, they underline uh, naturally that it has to be in, in line with Sharia um, uh, laws. What, does that, what that really means, it's, it's too early to tell, uh, but I think it's important for, for, uh, for the Red Cross, but also for the international community at large to keep the pressure up on, on, Afghanistan, uh, on Taliban, but also on all other authorities around the world that uh, denies uh, women uh, their rights to make sure that they have, uh, have uh, inclusion uh, high on their agenda. Thanks. Um, Turning to the intended topic, <laughs> finally, yeah. the pandemic, um, we've got 200 million recorded cases and counting with at least 4.3 million deaths so far. And now we've got the more contagious Delta variant mm -hmm. raging through the most vulnerable communities. With this grim backdrop, um, can you tell us a little bit about the work that the Red Cross and the Red Crescent have been doing during the pandemic? Definitely. Um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, this was definitely something that changed our world overnight. Um, from having a lot of diverse projects around the world, uh, all of a sudden uh, we needed to focus most of our work on uh, uh, supporting uh, local governments and local authorities in uh, giving health assistance to, uh, to populations and uh, also to tackle the more um, uh, secondary consequences. It has impacted our work hugely. Uh, I mean, we face the same travel restrictions as everybody else, uh, more or less. Uh, we have the same uh, challenge in, in being able to transport equipment uh, and uh, Basically, our volunteers are as uh, vulnerable as everybody else when it comes to uh, contracting the virus. So it's a, it has been a very challenging period. At the same time, I have to say it's also been a very rewarding period. And you, 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 you see this time after time, uh, time, uh, after time that it is in crisis that an organization uh, like the Red Cross and the Red Crescent really thrives and really uh, are able to... to, to, to to do what we are said that we what we are we are saying that we should do uh, save and improve lives. So up to now, uh, I just read the 18-month report. Uh, we have been able to reach almost one billion people with uh, health assistance, with health uh, promotion and hygiene promotion. 
because prevention is, of course, much more uh, effective than, uh, than treatment. So our, most of our focus has been on prevention, but also, uh, also on, uh, on, um, on uh, treatment. And I think here also the, the, the cooperation between GUARD and, and, and the Red Cross has uh, shown to be fruitful because part of the support to, the, to our COVID-19 uh, hospital in, in, uh, in Yemen, I think, is also originating from uh, from the support of guards so that's uh, that's uh, I, i'm very happy to say that and that was basically a treatment center in an area where there was no treatment for covid at all um, just, another, uh, just one more point yep, another okay. interesting thing is that usually <laughs> it's the western world helping either the uh, other national societies in africa or in americas or in uh, in middle east or in asia this pandemic, uh, it's gone always. Mm. Uh, China has been helping it, Italy, and uh, uh, we have been doing uh, work around, uh, within the, the movement in a totally different way than we used to do. Mm. So it's impacted the way we work as well. Mm. I think that's a little ray of hope too, mm. the international cooperation mm. and lifting everyone mm. at the same yeah. time. Um, now, COVID-19 uh, has caused uh, immense health challenges, but mm. that's not the whole picture, is it? No, it? Actually, it's probably the smallest part of the picture. Uh, because if you look uh, globally at it, uh, the socioeconomic consequences of uh, the pandemic, and I mean the close down uh, as a result, of the lockdown as a result of the, of the pandemic, are far uh, are much more far-reaching than the, the, the direct health consequences. I mean, the health consequences are dramatic, but uh, but uh, but uh, the consequences of the lockdown around the world are uh, much much more far-reaching. Far Loss of jobs, uh, declining economies, um, people uh, more or less out of school. Uh, I mean, you can go on and go on, and uh, and uh, and many places. The, uh, the death toll as a result of the secondary uh, consequences are higher than the, the death toll of the, of the virus itself. And you also see it globally when, I mean, we are looking at the sustainable development goals and looking on how we are imp improving the, the, the well-being of the, of the world's population. And sadly, we see that, and I think as, as I said it already in 2018 when I was here the last time, you, you, you saw already at that time that the the fantastic improvement we had seen in the well-being of the, of the world population since the Second World War up to now was starting to decline a little bit. Uh, and uh, after the now almost two years of the pandemic, uh, many indicators are going the totally wrong way. Uh, uh, more people are hungry today than there were in the world than two years ago. Uh, and more people are living in extreme poverty today than two years ago. And you can go on and on on a lot of these indicators. And we see that at least uh, in a, a short to mid-term perspective, the pandemic has really been a setback when it comes to development in the world. Um, let's turn to uh, vaccines. And I think one of the um, most positive things is the speed at which uh, vaccines were developed mm. and the cooperation internationally mm. and through the scientific community mm. to um, develop the mm. vaccines. Um, but would you say the vaccines have resulted in inequality with the rich com countries sort of putting themselves first mm. and holding excess supply and so on?
That's also one of the things that you saw already before the pandemic, that even though the, the trend that the, the, the world population is moving to a much better place than we, we used to be, at the same time, the inequalities in the world were increasing, both between countries, but also within countries. And uh, that trend you have really, has really been exacerbated by the, by, the, uh, by the pandemic. I agree with you that the technological uh, uh, aspect of the production of the vaccine has been uh, amazing, but when it comes to the distribution of the vaccine, I'm really, really depressed. Uh, I don't know how the discussion was globally at the time, but at, at least in Norway, when we were waiting for the vaccine to be developed. The approach was a very solidaric approach that no, no one is safe before everyone is safe. Uh, we need to uh, not only vaccinate uh, our own, uh, we need to vaccinate the vulnerable population all around the world. But the closer we came to the date that the, the first shot was uh, administered, more and more uh, populations, media and politicians uh, focused on their own. Uh, and that's what we've seen. I think I checked the numbers this morning. And um, I think now, uh, just check the numbers. Yeah, uh, yesterday, almost 32% of the world population has received their first dose. 23% uh, uh, have received two doses. Uh, if you look at the low income countries in the world, only 1.3% of the doses ad administered in the world have been administered in the low uh, income countries, which means it is the rich world that has been taking care of uh, we have been taking care of our own. And with the consequences that we see with the alpha vari variant, the beta variant, the delta variant, and there's going to be more uh, variants because now what we see that, for instance, in Africa, where the first uh, round was quite mild, second round was a little bit tougher, but still quite mild, but now we see the third round, and now it's really, really uh, hitting hard in many countries. And it wouldn't surprise me that we... There are new variants coming uh, in the months to come. So uh, I think we, uh, we really need to uh, keep up the pressure towards all the governments in the world that they need to do whatever they can to increase um, production, but also to make sure that there's a more equitable distribution than we have seen up to now. Indeed. I think uh, that's a, a true challenge, and no one is safe until everyone is safe, and that means mm. vaccinating humanity, not just the people in your own country. Exactly. And now, I, I mean, uh, I guess this is probably the same discussion in many uh, high-income countries, but in Norway, uh, now there is a discussion or, or, or already uh, one have decided to give the vaccine to 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, and one are also discussing a third dose. Uh, and I think uh, these are tough questions, and especially for politicians, I really understand it's a dilemma. <laughs> Uh, at the same time, uh, I think that we probably should make sure that everybody, everybody gets two shots before we start talking about a third dose. Mm. Um, now, one day, hopefully, we'll mm. be on the other side, at least mm. of the critical phase of a mm. pandemic. Um, what challenges do you see sort of at the end of the tunnel? No, I mean, first of all, the, uh, the socio-economic consequences that we have seen, they will still be there uh, when the, the virus is controlled. So I think we will, if it's going to be a bump in the road or, or a, a permanent setback when it comes to uh, 
development in the world. It's too early to tell, but it's definitely going to be a setback. And it means that we have to step back a couple of uh, steps and, and really, again, uh, see how can we uh, uh, make sure that uh, we reduce hunger in the world and we reduce um, extreme poverty in the world, because these are kind of the fundamentals we need to, to have in place before we can move up the, 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 the food chain, so to speak. Um, but then I think we need to just, uh, and we have an additional uh, component that I, we haven't touched upon yet, but I think <clears throat> the mental consequences uh, of this pandemic, uh, I think uh, we are aware of it. I don't think we are uh, uh, aware of the, the graveness of it. Uh, we, here in Arnaldsvika we have re, re, uh, presented reports on the mental well-being with youth here in Norway, which I mean is a well-off uh, country, uh, where basically the only challenge uh, we meet here is the, is the isolation, uh, while in most countries in the world you have isolation together with a lot of other challenges uh, as well, with, together with a lot of uncertainty. and the, and how this will affect us as persons uh, mentally and how uh, vulnerable that makes us in the years to come, I think it's uh, something that we need to have a very high focus on. And it's going to be something we need to deal with for 5, 10, 15 years, I think, both here in Norway, but also globally. And then for me, I think it's also interesting to see how will this affect the global uh, conversation, the national conversation, the local conversation, because one of the things you really see uh, in this pandemic is that politics matter. Um, it, who governs your country, who governs your municipality, uh, really uh, matters on how, if your children will live, if your grand, grandparents will live, if, uh, if you have a job, if you don't have a job. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very curious to see how will this play out politically uh, in different contexts in the years to come. because. If you go back to the previous pandemic, uh, back in 1918, 1919, at the backdrop of that, which coincided with the backdrop of uh, the First World War, so it's hard to say what, what, <laughs> what, was, the big, what was the biggest uh, determinator, but the world order we see today was to a large extent established just in the years after the, uh, after the pandemic and after the World War I. Uh, and that, for me, is also kind of a, something that gives me a little bit of hope because I think the pandemic has really shown us that how small this world is mm -hmm. and how independent we are on each other and, as I said, that politics actually matter. And I think this will... Uh, it has started reflections in my head. I guess it started some reflections in the orb. Everybody uh, will kind of have to reflect on this a little bit. And that will lead to some discussions and... I, maybe it actually could lead to, uh, to a stronger global uh, approach to the challenges we have ahead. And of course, the climate crisis, uh, which is the biggest crisis we are facing as, uh, as, uh, as humanity, has not uh, diminished during the pandemic. Uh, and we, to be able to ha tackle it, we really need to have a global uh, approach. And, uh, just maybe this pandemic could be nudging us in the right direction to have more uh, global uh, approaches. Because if you look at the 
fantastic developments that has been after the Second World War. It is because there has been a global will to do something about it. The last 10 years, uh, it has been much more polarization, much less uh, global will, much more, less global uh, agreement on where the world should uh, go. Maybe. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it could be a possibility. And I, I, I always choose hope. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's very reassuring that given your, um, your job and your background and your um, touch with all these things that you are optimistic. <laughs> that, that's, that's, uh, that's very reassuring. Um, and now just a final question. Um, given all the challenges we've discussed today and all the global challenges, present and future, um, your task is mighty. <laughs> um, and it's only going to increase. Mm. But do you see any positive signs for a better future? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I choose to look for the things that are positive. And, I, and I, if you look at, the, I think, if you look at the the, the youth generation, uh, I think. Uh, I see a generation that uh, are much more concerned about global issues uh, than my generation was, uh, that are mo much more uh, concerned about the future of the planet than my uh, generation was. Um, and I think the, um, I think they have a much more uh, stronger understanding of the climate crisis than uh, a lot of us older <laughs> people have. And for me, uh, I think that's where we need to, to, to look at the, at the youth and, and see how they, they really uh, have the right values and they, they want to change the world for the better because they want to have a world to, to, to live in. I, I was asked about uh, the challenges that I had when I was young and I, I remember well, uh, there were two challenges basically I was afraid of. There was uh, the, the possibility of a nuclear war which was very, uh, very, very strong at that time. And uh, it was the hole in the ozone layer. Uh, and today there is a uh, prohibition agreement uh, in place when it comes to nuclear weapons. It's not uh, implemented and, uh, yet, but it's, it's there. And the, ozone ho uh, the hole in the ozone layer is, uh, is, uh, is not there anymore. So the point is when people come together and say that we want to uh, tackle this uh, challenge, we have a very good track record of being able to do that. And that's, uh, I'm, we need to understand the challenge first. And I think the youth has understood it. And that's why I'm hopeful. I share your hope. And <laughs> I, I also share your confidence in the younger generation mm -hmm. compared to um, mine, which is even older than yours. <laughs> so, um, but I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us. And it's truly inspiring what you're doing. And thank you again for, for, for having me. And thank you so much for the, for the support from, from GARD, and which is, I mean, very much in, in line with how the Red Cross Red Crescent movement is, is working. You are supporting us locally, you're supporting us nationally, and you're supporting us globally. And uh, uh, as, the, as one former president in the Norwegian Red Cross used to say, there is no, uh, far away doesn't exist anymore. Everything is close. And um, through this partnership, I think, we are actually able to, to be close to the people, uh, both here in Arndal, in Norway, and globally. Here's a little postscript. 
I hope you found Bernd's optimism about the continued humanitarian work in Afghanistan as reassuring as I did. I took Bernd's advice and made a personal donation to UNICEF, the United Nations Children Fund, earmarked for girls' education in Afghanistan. It was easy. Just go to UNICEF website to learn more. And thanks for listening.